So today is Palm Sunday, so we'll be reading from Matthew 21, 6 through 11, and we'll read the English Standard Version. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of God. Thank you, Hannah. I forgot that I was coming up here for a moment. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Palm Sunday. What is Palm Sunday? Raise your hand if you know. Like zero interaction. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Palm Sunday. So today marks the beginning of what is called Holy Week or Passion Week on the Christian calendar. Um, as we read today, actually all four Gospels record the same event, Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, um, and it marks the the final week of his ministry and culminates on the Good Friday, not ironically called Good Friday. I I saw Hannah kind of stumble a little bit. She's like, as we celebrate the death of our Savior, yeah, it's a celebration because this is victory. It's crazy, but it is a celebration And so that culminates on Good Friday into Holy Saturday, and then next Sunday we celebrate Easter or Resurrection Sunday when our Lord Jesus was raised back to life. Uh, So that's Passion Week, and today marks the beginning of Passion Week. So we read Matthew chapter 21, verses 6 to 11. I actually want to read again... um, uh, from starting from verse 1. So here's Matthew chapter 21. It's titled, The Triumphal Entry, starting at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Whether this was something prearranged or if this is something divinely preordained, we don't really know. But what we know as we we read in in the the account in Luke, the owner of the donkey and the colt actually do say, hey, what are you doing? And they say, the Lord needs him, and then they bring him, okay? So Jesus gets the the donkey and the colt. This took place, verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, and put on them their cloaks, and he, Jesus, sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees, these were palm trees, and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, 
Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowds said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of God. So again, all four Gospels have an account of Jesus coming down Mount Olives on the way to Jerusalem. And all four accounts describe this triumphal entry. And the people gathered. They celebrated. They worshipped. And many of these people were probably travelers also on their way to Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover. This was a huge event one of the biggest holidays in the Jewish faith that celebrates when God freed Israel from bondage in Egypt. And undoubtedly, these people had heard all about what Jesus had been doing, all about his teaching, his powerful word, his influence, his miracles, the healing, and they probably definitely heard that he had just raised someone from the dead. So surely... He must be the one. Now, I want to bring some attention to the donkey. The donkey. Jesus comes riding a donkey or or a colt. He was on one of those. He wasn't sitting on both at the same time. He was riding riding one of those. Now, why? Why Why was he riding? Why was he riding the donkey? Was he suddenly tired? Like Jesus, throughout his entire ministry, for three years, he's been doing everything on foot walking like hundreds and hundreds of miles. And like, is he, is he suddenly, he's like, oh man, you know what? I'm tired today. I need, I need to rest my, I need to rest my feet. I need to, I need to sit on a donkey. Like, is that, is that why? Now there's some kind of different uh, historical context as far as like what a donkey signified and during that time in the ancient Near East. Now, one of them says that kings, when they're entering, when they're coming into a city, if they're riding on a horse, that means that they're coming in for war. But if they ride into city riding on a donkey, it means they're coming in peace. Okay? Now, there's a a few instances of this that we can find in the Old Testament. But one commentator, one preacher says, man, okay, like... Even with that context, like the donkey in everyday in everyday use, the donkey was just a beast of burden. It was like it was just it was like this beast that just did work. Nothing fancy about it, you know. And so one preacher likened this to the U.S. president traveling down the city on a tricycle. If you can imagine that, I don't know what you think of U.S. presidents these days, but you know, right? You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying, right? But donkeys have had such a significant presence throughout the story of Israel and Scripture that one writer uh, likened the donkey to the what is what is called or what he called the fifth business. Is anyone here in drama? Like grew up doing some drama? Have you heard anybody heard of what the fifth business? Okay, I'll tell you what it is. Uh, This writer says that 
The fifth business are those roles which, this is again in drama on, in stage, those roles which being neither those of the hero or heroine, the confidant, nor the villain, but which were nonetheless essential to bring about the recognition or the denouement. I don't know what denouement means, but I, I imagine it's like the, 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 the heightening of the drama. Were called the fifth business in drama. And opera companies organized according to this style. Okay, so one writer says that the donkey, he's so, so prevalent throughout scripture that the donkey is the fifth business. Never a, really a main character but some kind of important thing that brings about the next, like the important events. Um, one of my favorites is, uh, what's the guy's name? When the donkey talk, when the, when the donkey talks. Who? Shrek, okay, sh- there's Shrek and Eddie Murphy. Not that one. Who's the other one? Ba- Balaam. Balaam, yeah. I love that one, man. The donkey tur- turns around and says, why are you hitting me? <laughs> okay, anyways. Uh, back, to, back to this. Um, here in Matthew 21, the donkey plays the fifth business in such an important way that Matthew tells us in verses 4 and 5 why Jesus says he needed them. Verse 4 this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why did Jesus ride on the donkey today? It wasn't because he was tired. It was because he was fulfilling this prophecy. This is from Zechariah chapter 9. Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy. Now, whether the people that were surrounding Jesus knew, like, oh, this is Zechariah 9, whether they knew that or not, whether they had that in their mind or not, like, again, they had heard about Jesus. Maybe they were present with him in his ministry. They had seen, they had heard, they had, they, maybe they had been fed by the five loaves and the two fish through Jesus. Maybe they had been healed. Maybe they had seen healing. And they shout, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Right? They're probably singing that, right? Hosanna. It means save. It means save. And over time, and by the point of this story... Hosanna had become an expression of praise. It meant, Lord, save us, but it was like an expression of praise. They were shouting, Lord, save us. And they cut down palm branches and laid them before Jesus. They put down their cloaks, all of these a sign of their submission to Jesus as king. Now, the palm branches, they symbolized Jewish nationalism. They symbolized victory. Laying down your cloak. Like, you, know, you put it down and then a donkey's going to step on it? Like, man, but it's the king's donkey that stepped on it, right? It, it symbolized their 
submission to Jesus as king. And all of this is wonderful. It's fitting. But we're going to kind of leave that part of the story here because I don't think that the crowds knew quite what they were saying. What they were saying was true. What they were doing was right. But I don't think they quite understood what they were doing. And this is evidence because over the next week, come Friday when Jesus is hanging on the cross, the crowd is nowhere to be seen. But so all of this, all of this scene, all of what's happening, the crowds and all this Jesus coming in on a donkey, causes such a stir in the city that it says like the whole city asks, who is this? This is a very appropriate question. Who is this? Verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Who is this? Actually, I would argue that this is the most important question anyone could ever ask. Back to the donkey for a moment. Fifth business. Important character, right? The donkey tells us who Jesus is. Because riding on the donkey's back is the promised king. Who is this? It's the promised king. The promised king prophesied in Zechariah 9, prophesied throughout Scripture. The promised king who comes not in glory, but in humility, in lowliness. And we see in just a week, he comes in suffering. Like if it was me and I was coming in town, even if I was trying to be humble, you know, you'd come in like doing your queen wave, you know what I mean? Like, but Jesus comes not in glory, but as the humble king. But here's the thing. Jesus is humble, yes. But he is so intentional. And if you see this, Jesus saying, hey guys, I need, I need the donkey. Go get it for me because we're going to ride into town and I'm going to sit on this donkey. Jesus is humble, yes. But he is self-proclaiming who he is. He is self-promoting himself. I'm the king. I'm coming. It's this public declaration of his humble reign. Because it's a bold statement, isn't it? It's a bold statement to say, yep, I'm the Messiah. It's the bold statement to claim to be the Messiah, the promised one, the king, who has been prophesied for hundreds, thousands of years. It's unfathomable for any humble human to make these claims, isn't it? I sometimes get, go into these rabbit holes looking at YouTube and watching things, and there's people, you guys know, there's people who say that they're Jesus, like right now. Anybody here from Australia? He's one of the big guys I've been, I've been looking at. There's this dude in Australia, good-looking dude, and he says that he's Jesus. So yeah, I'm Jesus, deal with it. Uh, but, you know, when you, you, you see that stuff, it's like, this dude's nuts. <laughs> 
He's not a humble dude. No, he's not. He's doing something. Something's going on there. (laughs) Jesus, the humble king, he comes in humility, yes, but he self-proclaims who he is. And, you know, we we, we usually we disdain people who talk about themselves so much. Like if you know someone that's like always talking about themselves, you're like, eh, hey, cool, I'll see, you, I'll see you later, right? Kind of just like when people are just talking about themselves all the time, it's like, ah, don't really like being around that. We're, well, we're especially repulsed by anyone who would demand our love and obedience, total allegiance. But you know, Jesus, he does this. Over and over and over again. He does this over and over again. It's funny because people love Jesus. I hope that we're here. I hope that we love Jesus. But, you know, people outside the church, they tend to love Jesus. They tend to love Jesus. They tend to admire Jesus, even if they, even if they hate Christianity, even if they're like, oh, Christianity is just this system of thought that's for the, for the weak, that's like designed to oppress and, and all this kind of stuff. Even if they think that about the church or, or religion as an institution, most people like Jesus for a number of different reasons. But one of the reasons is they're like, oh, because he's, he's humble. He's a good teacher and he's humble. And maybe these same people would say, yeah, you know, but Jesus, he never, he never said, he never claimed to be God. Have you heard that? It doesn't say, like, it never, doesn't say here anywhere. Jesus never says, I am God. But, but he does. And here in Matthew chapter 21, as Jesus has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, this is one of those instances. Jesus is saying, I'm here. I'm the king. And so again, even though the people that were surrounding Jesus this day, they were excited about him. They were praising throwing their cloaks and the palm branches down. And even though what they were proclaiming, declaring is true, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Jesus, you are the one that can save us, even though that is true. I don't think they knew what they were saying because they, def- they definitely didn't know what this King Jesus was about to do. And here's the thing, much like the modern world, much like most of us here, what we think we need, right, what we think we need. And so this is rather than what we profess to believe, but the way that we live our lives reveals what we think we need. Does it it make sense? So what we think we need is not enough. So if we can bookmark this question, what do we really need? Bookmark that question. But here's what's important. That's what's happening right now. The people are praising him. They're worshiping him. Here's what's important. Jesus does not correct them. So again, the question, 
Jesus never claimed to be God. He never, he never said that he was God. Check it out. Jesus never corrected them. He does not ever say, stop worshiping me. So when people say Jesus was a good moral teacher, but he wasn't God. When people say he was a prophet, maybe even the greatest prophet that ever lived, remember this. No true prophet of God. In fact, like even angels in their great glory, none of them would allow people to worship them. They wouldn't do it. Because they know who deserves worship is God and God alone. But Jesus receives their worship. In the account in the book of Luke, Luke 19, verse 39, upon hearing the crowds praising and shouting at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders, they urged Jesus because they're like, okay, they recognize Jesus. That, yeah, maybe, maybe he's a teacher. Maybe he's a rabbi. So they say to Jesus, hey, silence them. Jesus responds. I love this. Jesus responds. I tell you, if they keep quiet, the rocks will cry out. He doesn't correct them. I'm the king, I'm coming. If they don't worship, the rocks themselves will cry out. Later in Matthew chapter 21, as Jesus is in the temple gates, children are seen shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna, Hosanna, right? Hosanna to the son of David. And the chief priests and the teachers of the, of the law say, ask the same thing. They say, hey, do you hear what these kids are saying? Do you hear what they're doing? This is, this is blasphemy. And Jesus replies, yes. Yeah, I hear them. But haven't you read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? Okay, so do we see this? A good moral teacher, a good rabbi, a good prophet would not receive this praise. Jesus, humble king, yes, but he proclaims himself. He self-proclaims himself, I am the one. I am the Messiah. I am the King. I am the Son of David. I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of God. I am the true and everlasting King. And Jesus says, I am worthy of praise. I am worthy of undivided devotion. This is Jesus. So what does Jesus, this king, what does Jesus do when he enters Jerusalem? I turn back to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke tells us that as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps. In John chapter 1, verse 11, it says that Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to his people, and he weeps. In Luke 13, it says that Jesus weeps when he looked upon the city. He said, he said like, 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 a, like a mother hen, I, I long to gather them under my wings, but, but they reject me. And in Luke 19, verse 42, at this triumphal entry, 
Jesus weeps, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. They didn't know the things that make for peace. Jesus weeps because, I think, because he knows what's happening. He knows what's going to happen. That here in this final trip into Jerusalem, he knows it. He's been telling his disciples along the way, this is going to happen. He knows that his father will instruct him to drink the cup of his wrath. And on Friday, Jesus is coronated as king. It's such a powerful metaphor. I heard it from my friend Adrian when she was preaching once. The coronation of a king, that Jesus is coronated, not in this glorious way, seated upon this amazing, glorious throne, that Jesus is coronated as he is raised, not on a throne of glory, but he is raised, nailed to a cross. Jesus wept. They didn't know. They didn't know what would bring peace. And shortly after this, it's highlighted his opposition, the Pharisees. They challenge him. The Pharisees challenge Jesus. By what authority do you teach? This is verse 23, Matthew 21, verse 23. By what authority do you teach? This is not like anything that we've heard. Like, what's the proof? What's the proof? What's the proof of what you say? What's the proof that Christianity is real? What's the proof that Jesus is, right? And Jesus responds with two stories. And for time, we're not going to get into it. But but Jesus makes this clear. Because of unrepentance... Because of unbelief. Because they did not bear fruit of the kingdom of God. That those people challenging him would not inherit the kingdom of God. Repentance, belief, and fruit of the kingdom of God. Repentance, it's not an easy thing. What is repentance? Is it just, uh, is it just saying sorry? I think that's part of it, but it's only part. And I would say it's actually not quite the main part of repentance. See, repentance, and, 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 I, and I hope that you've heard this from this pulpit many times, but repentance is turning. It's turning from whatever it is that you thought was going to give you hope, whether that's pleasure or power or an addiction or security or whatever it is, like turning from whatever that thing is to Jesus. That's repentance. And that's the way that we receive Jesus. Jesus says, because you weren't, because you didn't repent. Repent. 
you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Repentance is not an easy thing. You know, I have a friend whose entire Christian life was marked by a pervasive and exhausting sense of guilt, of shame, of not being enough, of not measuring up, of being a failure. Can you, can you relate to that? I know I can. I certainly can. More days than not, I can, I, 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 I can relate to that. And I know, my friend, I know that he knew something about repentance, about asking for forgiveness, right? Asking for forgiveness, but then the next time around, you fail again, and then that pervasive sense of exhaustion, of failure, is just exacerbated, exacerbated piling up more and more. And that guilt never absolved. And recently, his solution to that sense of guilt has been he's left faith. He's left Jesus. And he blames the church, he blames the Bible, he blames Christianity, Christians throughout his life for damaging his sense of self-worth, for imposing this arbitrary moral standard, this moral demand that was just designed to make him feel bad to make him hate himself. And his solution to leave Christ and faith, he's, now, he's determined to not feel bad about anything. He's determined to not feel guilty about anything. No matter what it is that he does, whatever thing it is that he wants to get himself into, he's like, eh, And so actually he's now throwing himself headlong into just absolutely whatever it is that he can, whatever passions or desires that he, that he has. Now I, I sympathize with much of this. I shared last time that I was preaching. This is, this is part of my story. There was a time where I made the conscious decision that I was going to leave my faith. I was going to put my faith on the back burner and just live to satisfy my appetite. Like, I've been there. I know that. I know that feeling. Push off the moral obligations and just enjoy life. But what's the issue with this? Now, guys, listen, I, I, don't, I do not stand here in judgment of my friend if he's listening like, I, don't, I think he wouldn't have a problem with this. But, but to make clear, I'm not standing here in judgment of him. Like, I love him. I love him. He's my homie. I love him. But I, as I thought about this, I wondered, like, I wondered what, I wonder if this is part of it. We are broken. We know this. We are broken. Without Jesus, we are broken. We know it. We see it all around us. We see it in us. But let me argue that the brokenness is not actually what's beautiful. The brokenness is not actually what's beautiful. And, I, and, and let, me, let me say this. In our culture, I think, in our culture, we want our brokenness to be beautiful, to be accepted as good, as celebrated. Like, the brokenness is the highest moral value. Do you guys, do you guys understand what I'm saying? And 
the opposite is not better, okay? Like the opposite saying like, oh, I'm not broken, I'm fine, I'm totally, ah, I just, I just live. Okay, so the opposite is not better, but this culture of celebrating the brokenness as beautiful in and of itself, I don't know, man, the, like the world is, in, in a sense, I, I, I see like calling to normalize and celebrate the brokenness as individuality. And it, okay. I'm making kind of these broad statements, and I know that people, we're very complex, okay? We're very complex. But when I listen to the various voices and the topics and, and, and social wars, like, it just it hit me. The brokenness of our humanity, the brokenness of sin, I think is being celebrated and redefined as the defining value of like different identity groups. Okay, so I, I think I made a lot of broad statements here. But let me say this. The brokenness is not the brokenness itself in and of itself that's beautiful or value or valuable. The thing that is beautiful is the redemption amidst the brokenness. That's the beauty. That's what's beautiful. Because without being honest about our brokenness, we will never receive redemption, right? Without brokenness, without seeing brokenness, admitting to it and, and, and really knowing it, like we'll never receive redemption. We'll never receive healing. But the beauty, the beauty is in the redemption. The beauty is in the healing. So it's not that brokenness is beautiful, but because only in brokenness, only in opening up ourselves and giving Jesus our brokenness, right? Not in hiding it, not in shrugging it off, not in puffing up. In giving Jesus our brokenness, we experience and receive healing, redemption, comfort, compassion, healing. And that is beautiful. And here's one more aspect, this, this, this issue of the solution like, of what my, my friend is, is toying with here. That we can do whatever the heck we want because ultimately there are no rules. See, that's exactly what being your own king is about. That's exactly what being your own king is about. And the problem with that is, one, each of us, we make pretty crummy kings. But more importantly, there is a true king. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is my prayer that, his, that he, would, he would make a triumphal entry into each of our hearts and lives. Jesus is king. And he doesn't come with a better ethic. He doesn't come with a better moral code. He doesn't come as a better example. No, Jesus, he's the good and humble king. He knows how you're feeling. He knows that feeling of dissatisfaction, of 
angst, of longing and disappointment, of our struggles and confusion. He knows all of that. And he comes not riding on a war horse with imperialism in his, on his mind. No, he comes riding on a donkey, humble. He comes weeping. He weeps. He longs for you. He longs for you. He longs for me. And he suffers. And he took our shame. He became a laughingstock as he hung, beaten, bleeding, naked on the cross. And he died and he paid for your sin. He paid for my sin. He paid for it. It's done. He said, it is finished. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord, and he is not shy about it. He wasn't shy about it 2,000 years ago. He's not shy about it today. And this king calls us to repent, to turn from those things that we think are going to give our lives meaning and purpose and hope and satisfaction. He says to turn to him. This king, this good king, this humble king, he shows us love. If we keep trying to prove, if we keep trying to find proof of God's love in the next turn of events, we'll be disappointed. That's a mistake. And God, he does, he does, he does show up, he does move. But if we keep looking for proof in every next thing, in every next turn of events, listen, he's given us proof, ultimate proof on the cross. Ultimate proof is on the cross. The cross. There's never been a love so great. There's never been a love so great. There's never been a king like this. You know, this year, the word for our community, grit. True grace produces true grit, right? Grit, this idea of resilience, this idea of being able to endure. Not just hard times but actually specifically the ability to follow Jesus until your last breath or until he returns, whichever comes first. How do we, how do we find this grit? How do we find this resilience? We're going through in our community groups through a book called Grit. And uh, I'm wrapping up here. And John Eldridge, he's the, he's the writer of this material. And just, just every time, week after week, the bottom line is, it's loving Jesus. God gives us this divine resilience as a gift, not like us trying to be real strong and just pull through and push through and break through and do stuff, but God gives us this Resilience, and it comes through loving Jesus in response to his ultimate love.
So in closing, I ask each of us, how do we respond to King Jesus? How do you respond to King Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, you entered into Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of the king, the center of religious life, riding on a donkey, proclaiming loud and clear who you are. You are the king. You are the true king. You are the king of kings. You are humble. You are good. And you are king. And you love us. And you've shown us your great love. Now, while we were yet sinners, Jesus, you died for us. I thank you for your love. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your kingship. Be king in each of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to move into time of communion. Communion. The night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered his disciples and they had a meal together and Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. It's a symbol of his ultimate, of his ultimate love for us and going to the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. When you take communion today, when you hear Pastor Sangmin or when you hear me passing you the elements when we say this is his body given for you, this is his blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins, when you hear those words, would you also, would you hear Jesus saying to you, I love you. Jesus is saying, I love you. This is my body. This is my blood. I love you. And when we are all gathered together and we're sitting and when we take the elements together, I would also ask, as you take, would we respond and respond with, I love you, Jesus. So the ushers will come around and they'll guide you.